good worship and a nice little tune. Please take your Bibles and turn to Psalms 19. Psalms 19. And I'll just be reading three verses out of Psalms 19. A little bit about Psalms 19. It's a microcosm of Psalms 119. And if you've ever done a study of Psalms 119, it deals all with the Word of God. So if you have time, it's a great study. It's a great read. It's long, but it's good. But Psalms 19, verses 7, 8, and 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. May God add a blessing to His Word. Please be seated. Sola Scripta, or Sola Scriptura, which means Scripture alone. This phrase originated during the Great Reformation around 1517. And this phrase, sola scriptura, is from Latin. Sola having the idea of alone, ground, or base, and the word scriptura meaning writings. Referring to the scriptures, obviously. And so sola scriptura means that the scripture alone is authoritative for salvation, for godliness, for sanctification, growing in the wisdom and knowledge and transformation in Christ and living in general. Now, there's been a lot of debate about the inerrancy and infallibility of God's Word. Now, we don't have time this morning for me to dive into those with great detail, but as a baseline of understanding, inerrancy means without error. Infallibility means there's, it's not wrong, but always right. Now, inerrancy is ascribed to the original manuscripts as divinely inspired by God through the hands that wrote them. At the same time, the original manuscripts, which we don't have a copy, we don't have a single original manuscript today, as they're all copies. They were copied thousands of times by scribes and copyists who did make slight errors, which within textual criticism is called variance. But these errors never changed the full intent of what God's Word was saying. Now, because of textual criticism, the study of the comparison of the manuscripts that we do have today, which are about 25,000, they have been able to eliminate a lot of the errors that have been put in there by scribes. We, co- we covered them uh, one, uh, two weeks ago where there was a verse missing. And we discussed that a little bit. But now they've gotten to the point where it's about 95% accurate in our current understanding of the manuscripts. And Bibles such as the ESV and the NASB is drawn from this textual criticism that is 95% accurate, with the 5% being represented as small errors that don't really amount to much. 
Now, infallibility, as I stated earlier, means it's incapable of being wrong as it relates to truth. In other words, what the Word of God says on a particular issue is true regardless of small errors and the many times it's been copied over the centuries. So why is this important? Why is it important to understand this? Why, is, why, why are you talking about this, Tim? Because we live in a world today, and unfortunately we even see it in the church today, where people do not believe the Word of God is accurate as it relates to the issues we face in the world today. In other words, it's only good for church, so leave it there. It's incapable, it's outdated, it's full of errors, it can't be trusted to address the issues that we face today. One of the areas that this is apparent is in the area of sexuality. Where the Bible is held in contempt as it relates to its positions, its teaching, and its commandments. So what do we do? As society, we defer to science. We defer to social progression. And not the archaic word of God that cannot be trusted in that area. Or any other area that falls under progressiveness. And so they view God's Word as insufficient in dealing with those items or those issues or those difficulties of understanding. And so we need to supplement it. We need to supplement it with psychology. We need to supplement it with science. We need to supplement it with something that helps it make sense or maybe gives us the outcome that we desire. As a result, the world and Fortunately, the church is pivoting away from what the Word of God is dealing with in the areas of sexuality, environment, social justice, feminism, abortion, education, and the list goes on. So let me ask you a question. Is the Word of God sufficient for your life? Amen. How much have you, in your walk, with the Lord, deferred to the world as it relates to dealing with the tough issues of life. Think about that. How quickly have you ever deferred to the world to get the answer you were looking for before you even went to the Word of God to find out what it said? I think we all do it. A lot of times it's because we want a quick answer to an issue that's of time sensitivity, you know? But why do we not turn to the Word of God first? This morning I want to preach on the supremacy of Scripture. The supremacy of Scripture. And convey with confidence that God's Word is sufficient in all areas in our life. Not just the church ones. Not just the religious one. But in every area of our life. So let's begin this study by looking at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You know, God's grace is the most precious gift we have ever received. And it comes straight from the heart of God to you and me because of His love. It's what saves us. 
It's what brings us to Christ. It's what gives us faith to live this life in Him. Listen to His precious word where it says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. We can talk and discuss the various applications of prevenient grace, right? Where are we born with faith or are we given faith? You know, how does this salvation thing work as far as how does it begin within us? But at the end of the day, we know that it's by the grace of God that we are revived in our soul. There's no other way unto salvation than that by the way of Christ. And Scripture is very clear on this. It is not muddied. It is not, uh, I don't really know. It's very specific on this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And it's by God's grace that woos you into this. And it is by His faith that He gives you to believe upon it. For with the heart one believes and is justified, which is a legal term saying that your position before God the Almighty Judge has changed to where you are now seen as Christ, presented faultless before the Father, no longer guilty of your sin. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And yet there are some who don't hold to this truth. Well, some of us might sit in the church and go, well, who would they be? <coughs> there are faiths out there that hold that, that tradition and sacraments are to be equal with Scripture. And they are necessary for salvation. There are some that believe that works is a part of salvation. And there's a growing number of churches that believe that. There are some still who believe in rationalism and that they perceive God as an all-loving and all-caring and all-merciful, which He is. And so He would never allow everybody to perish. And so they promote universalism. Rob Bell. I've read and seen several people who continually expose Famous and popular preachers on television with large audiences who either believe in universalism or that there are many paths to God. In fact, I have seen some very popular preachers when asked that question, they never specifically address it. They just him-haw around. They give the long answer around the barn. And I bet this discussion came up with, for you young people, if this discussion came up with your friends, either because you're either new to Christ or, or you just haven't been, you know, established your foundation in Christ by this way of discipleship, if somebody says, do you believe that there's many ways to God? You might actually buckle and say, well, you know, I don't know. Maybe. In fact, the growing number of young people today are being challenged in their faith. 
And because the world believes there's many ways to God, and God is an all-merciful and all-loving God, which, he, again, He is, there's no way that God would send people to hell because they just didn't know. Hmm. Romans chapter 1. So they will see Him in His creation, and they'll be without excuse. They forget the words of Jesus. For I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Paul's words. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Can't work your way to heaven. The works that James talks about are the works that we do in faith. Not to obtain it. Listen, man does not determine the pathway to heaven. In fact, whenever I talk to people about that, and, I, and they'll say, well, I just believe, you know, like I just said, God, you know, is all merciful, all loving, and he won't let anybody go. Look, if you're making up the rules as to what is salvation, then you're God. And if you're God, what are you still doing here? Because if I was God, I'd be popping smoke. You can't determine that. You don't determine that. Religion does not determine the path to heaven. God has already determined what is the way, what is the truth, what is the light, and it's Jesus. And His Word has supremacy as it relates to salvation. Now the second half of verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now, the word used here for wisdom means the ability to discern that which is good from that which is evil, and in the restrainment, in acting in an evil manner. In essence, God's word is sufficient in providing guidance as it relates to morality. Choosing between what is right and choosing between what is wrong. Before Christ, we were simple people. We were. We had no real discernment except what we held to our own convictions by way of what our mom and dad taught us or what we formulated after we left home. We determined what was right and wrong based upon how, what the laws say or how society reacts. I have seen people's morality change in an instant whenever there was social pressure to change it. Their conviction went right out the window as soon as they found out that their view was not a popular one. I've seen it happen. I've seen it, unfortunately, happen to Christians who cave because they don't want to be alienated or identified as a whatever. Before Christ, we were simple people. We were like those plastic bags out by Walmart. We just got blown away by the wind, right? Caught on a fence or tree or whatever the case might be. We had no sense of direction, no sense of purpose. We just hanging out. But for those who are saved, by the grace of God, they are given wisdom from on high. Wisdom to know what's right and what's wrong. Wisdom to understand where right and wrong come from, which is the word of God. Listen to these scriptures. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding 
Jesus taught the disciples for two years, refashioning their mind, renewing their mind. We talked about that in Sunday school class, how you can get lost in religion and Jesus continuously challenged the Pharisees to flip the script. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Have you ever done that? Lord, help me to understand this situation. Give me wisdom to determine what is right and what is wrong. You might be sitting in your chairs going, well, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? Well, Darla and I had a young lady who loved the Lord, followed the Lord, grew up in the Lord, discipled in the Lord, sound foundation in the Lord. She asked Darla if it was all right to have sex before marriage because they're going to get married anyway. That's how blinded we can become. That's how deceived we can become when our desires trump what God's Word is saying. That's why we need wisdom to discern what is right and what is wrong. And then in that wisdom, we're empowered to make the right decisions. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because of the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, not just for your life, but in everyday circumstance. What is the will of God in that specific situation at that time in your life? It's to be righteous. It's to live righteous. It's to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It is to decide the things that bring glory and honor to God, not which elevate yourself and satisfy the desires of your heart. How we live our lives should always be governed by God's Word. It's just not a church thing. And since we have been given the ability to discern that which is evil from that which is good by virtue of His Word and His Spirit, we're held to that accountability of how we decide. Therefore, we need to allow God's Word in directing our lives in every single decision that we make. Honey, you want to go to the movie tonight? Yeah, what movie do you want to go to? I don't know. That one right there looks pretty good. Oh, there's some, I heard there's some explicit sex scenes in that. Strong coarse language. A lot of violence. Yeah, but we could just filter that out. Right? That's like reading the Playboy magazine for the articles. Do we take it to that level? We need to. Because what we take in is what we exude. Now the world would say that morality is relative. Ah, what has been held as morally true is ever changing. The, the, the meter is moving. Abortion is one of the key areas in which the world has continuously moved to acceptance of the practice. The Roe v. Wade decision, praise God. But a conservative state which I assume is predominantly Christian, I would hope, Kansas, they voted for abortion. If you ask the church through Pew Research, it's not 100% within the church. 
for pro-life. That's shocking. Why is that? Because they see it as a political issue, not a life issue. They see it as a rights issue, not a life issue. I've had this conversation several times with my coworker. When you view a life through politics or you view a life through someone else's rights, it's easy then to dispose of it. As the morality of the world continues to evolve and move, God's word is constant. It never changes as it relates to morality. What has been wrong from the beginning is still wrong. And what is right from the beginning is still right. Do you think we're living in times that are new to creation itself? Oh, no, no, no. History repeats itself over and over and over. There is nothing new under the sun. And so God's word is sufficient for morality and guiding it. How about verse 8? The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Here in this verse we find God's word is sufficient in a very important way, and that is as it relates on this earth, as to what provides us joy and peace. Everybody desires peace. Everybody desires joy. I've never met a person that says, you know, I prefer turmoil. Everybody's looking for peace and serenity and joy in this life. Almost 40% of Americans are dealing with anxiety and depression. 40%. Man is always looking for peace. And now I have preached and taught on joy many times, so I'm going to remind you of the definition that we use. Joy is the eternal divine emotion that assures the believer of God's providence and sovereignty that transcends the circumstances of the world. It is a gift of God by way of the Holy Spirit. And it established by God's grace and the atoning work of Christ, given us the great assurance of His return and our eternal inheritance. In other words, I'm going to summate this into one quick sentence. God has this. No matter what you face, no matter where you go, God has you, He understands you, He's there. He will never leave you, He will never forsake you, and because He has given it to us by way of His Holy Spirit. It sits right in the very center of our spirit and gives us assurance that even though everything around me is not okay, I'm okay. I'm okay in Christ. Now, people today try to find joy and peace in great many things. They try to find it in materialism. I know people who go and buy things just to get that sense of feeling of joy and that feeling of peace. And then what happens when the newness of whatever that thing was that they bought wears off? They're right back to that hole. So what do they do? They go and buy something else. Or people who do drugs, and people who drink alcohol to excess and drunkenness. They're trying to fill a void that only Christ can fill. 
Only Christ can give you that inner peace. Only Christ can give you that inner joy. And it's lasting. It doesn't perish. In fact, if you continue to read the Word of God and you rely on His promises, that joy and that peace increases in your life. And when He takes you through a trial or a tribulation to increase the faith that you have, as James would say, your joy increases knowing, Lord, you had that from the very beginning. Why did I doubt you? And then you walk around in that victory with joy in your heart, knowing that He took a specific interest in your life. Because sometimes in the midst of trials and tribulations, we think we're alienated from God. Mm-mm. He's right there. And He's working it out for your good. I think that's a promise in God's Word. Great peace have those who love your law. For nothing can make you stumble. I love this verse because it reminds me of me. Right? And I'm sure it reminds something of yourself. Before Christ, we had no peace. Right? Only what the world provided. And apart from the military that provided every one of my needs, I still had no answers for life. And even at, at, at my 10-year mark, I was petrified of retirement because what am I going to do? i got to figure this out. But when Christ entered into my life, and when Christ entered into your life, we begin to read His Word. We begin to follow His Word. And guess what? You found direction. You found purpose. You found validation. You found assurances that He's in charge. And as a result of that, you found peace and you rest in joy because He has you. Don't seek joy and peace in this world. Don't seek it in money. Timothy says it, or Paul wrote in Timothy, it's flighty. Look at the stock market, it comes and goes. Don't seek it in possessions. Moth and rust can destroy. They depreciate. They don't always hold their luster. Don't seek it in man's philosophy where you go out and buy the, the newest book on how to be the best you or the 1,057 ways in which to become to have peace or whatever the newest book out there is. I don't know. Let God give you that joy. Let God give you that peace. Let God's Word give you that joy and that peace. Because He makes known to you the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But it does even more than that. The second half of that scripture. In verse 8, the commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Here the psalmist uses the word commandment. And yes, it's another way to describe Scripture. But this word is authoritative in the sense that it's not an option. In fact, all of God's commandments, statutes, and precepts are not suggestions. But in fact, obligated courses of action that we are required to do. 
Now, as we draw near to the second coming of the Lord, this world is becoming increasingly defiant. Defiant of authority. Defiant of even believing in, in, a, in a holy God for which they will succumb to judgment. We can even find ourselves being defined, especially in the area where we desire the things that we desire. It can happen to us as well. But remember what God's Word says. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. You know what that means? They're good for you. They're good for you. You may not like them. <laughs> you may not agree with them. But they're good. They're always good. They're always pure. They always produce something in God. God is not standing in heaven just saying, I own you and I just want you to do what I want you to do. No. His ways are always continually to draw you closer to Him and to become like His Son. And that's what His commandments do. They're good for you. Don't resist them. Don't rebel against God's commandments. And His commandments are pure, meaning they are clear and easily understood. Oh, the Bible's so hard to interpret. No, it's not. Yeah, sure, there's a few verses or the hard sayings of Jesus or some scriptures in there that we might have to sit down and maybe dissect a little bit more and get the context, right, and do proper interpretation. But they're predominantly pretty clear. We like to muddy the water so that we can have a reason to not do it. You ever had that with your children? No, wait, what did you actually say, though, Dad? <laughs> no, I think you understood exactly what I meant. You knew my intent. Yeah, but uh, no, you knew. His precepts, his laws, his statutes are defective corruption. They're defective sin. Boy, I wish our laws were like that. For God himself is pure. Nothing from him is impure, incorrect. It's perfect. There's no evil within them. And what this means is we can put our full trust in them. And when we do, our lives become pure. They become pure. Absent of contamination. Absent of contamination. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Psalms 119.9 But they also bring light into darkness where we once reside. Our eyes were once set upon sin. That's all it wanted. And, right, and unrighteousness. But now under the illumination of God's word, we see the light of the gospel. For your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It reveals who he is. It reveals who we are. It reveals how we are to live and whom we are to follow. And we can now see once clearly, which was blinded by darkness. It was amazing after I was saved how I would start to see things 
in a more accurate and clear way. And I was miffed as to how people weren't seeing what I was seeing. <laughs> There's many funny stories. I could, I could sit in conversations as a cop after recently being saved and devouring the Word of God. And I was learning and being, my mind was being transformed. And I would sit in a circle with security forces and they would say things. And I would go, ah, did, you, did you hear what he said? And everybody's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were all agreeing with him. And I was the only one shocked. Because I was seeing things through the pure eyes of Christ, through his word. You know, I recently had a conversation this last week with a woman who's going through some rough times. I won't go into the details as to what her you know, situation is. I wouldn't want to do that anyway. But she, need to inhere, she needed to hear an encouraging word. So I asked her if she's talked to anybody. I asked her what church she goes to. She told me. I said, have you sat down and talked to your minister for counseling? And she goes, I did. And the first time that we met, I said, please don't bring me all that Bible stuff. I just want to get some advice. I'm not ready to hear all that. I'm not ready to process all that. And she, that's not me. That was her. She was very animated. She just wanted somebody to tell her what to do because of her desperate situation. She wanted answers, but not from God's word. She wanted clarity, but not from God's Word. She wanted guidance, but not from God's Word. She wanted help, but not from God's Word. She could not see the real issue that she was facing. She could not see her real problem. I seen it right off. Her ability to assess her situation was darkened by her own reluctance to receive from God that which would have brought clarity to her situation and direction. Because she didn't want to hear all that Bible stuff. Do you see how easy it is for somebody who goes to church to segment what is God and what is life and they're two separate things? That's why God's Word is sufficient for all things. Just not church things. Is God sufficient in dealing with the tough issues of life? Absolutely. So why then does men, and even some in the church, seek answers Elsewhere, Scripture reveals that too. In their case, the God of this world, which can be man, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's why. That's why. And so I pray for her that her eyes would be opened the scales would be removed, that God would woo her unto himself and reveal himself to her heart. And thus bring reality to her life. 
And so God's word is sufficient in means of enlightening our eyes to see what is good and what is evil in his commandments. Verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous together. Now here the psalmist uses a different word than what we have been hearing. Instead of law and testimony and precepts and commandments, now he uses the word fear. Why? Why did he change? Actually, the psalmist is using fear as a synonym to the law. And the reason why he does this is because of all of God's commandments, precepts, and rules require not only reverence, but accountability. But it is more than that, as it additionally means that those, or through God's word, we learn how to fear the Lord in reverence. We learn how to worship Him in spirit and in truth. We should fear God with the understanding that if we do not follow God's statutes, there will be an accountability. And we'll be judged. We talked about that. Not a judgment not a, not, a, not a judgment as to your condition, whether you go to heaven or hell, but a judgment as to what you've done with God's word, that which was good and that which was evil. And the works that we do in Christ that are not of Christ will be burnt up. Now this fear of accountability should motivate us to follow His word and not take His grace in vain. Let me explain that through a personal experience. My dad never laid a hand on me. Not one time that I'm aware of. And he loved me. And I loved him. And I greatly respected him. I admired him. He was a man of great work ethic. He was a man of, of great simplicity. He wasn't a covetous man. He wasn't a greedy man. He was a man that always did what was right, even in a situation that was going to make his life difficult if he chose the right way. And when I messed up and dad was coming home, there was fear. Fear of him beating me? No. Reverential fear. Because I know when he gets home and he heard what I did, there'd be disappointment. There'd be accountability for what I did. And although there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is an accountability. I didn't want to disappoint my father because I loved him. And if we love the Lord our God, then we will follow his commandments. That's our primary motivation in following His commandments. But we are to be held accountable. And the psalmist goes on to say, The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now this verse, as it relates to the day in which we live, is immensely important for us to grasp. The word rules used by the psalmist means verdicts. Just like in a courtroom. It means the case has been brought before the Almighty God and He has spoken. And therefore He has judged the situation. And His judgment is to be followed. 
It is infallible, meaning there is no appeal to a higher court. Now, it's important we grasp this as well because in the times in which we live, we tend to take liberty with God's Word and fashion it to suit our lives or interpret it to allow something in our life that we desire. And as a result, we err in understanding God's Word. Jesus told the leaders all the time, you err in not knowing the Scriptures. Why? Because you fashion them for your own purpose. Now it is this word truth that makes this verse extremely important. What God has decreed in His Word is truth. Truth is not relative as it relates to God's Word. Meaning it doesn't mean what you want it to mean, and then it means something over here totally different. It means what it means. Psalms 119.160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Forever. doesn't change. Today, truth, it seems, is ever growing to be relative itself. We have philosophers, we have scholars, we have educators who all say that there is no absolute truth. What is true to you is true to you, and what is true to me is true to me, as they would say. And so as a result, they've abandoned absolute truth of God's Word for whatever fits their narrative of life. I like what Augustine said about truth when he was quoted saying this, Where I found truth, there found I my God, who is the truth itself. So, in daily lives, is God's word sufficient? Let's put it to the test. In the beginning, God created heavens and earth. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Is God's word sufficient as it relates to creation versus evolution? And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Is God's word sufficient as it relates to the environment? If you read the Bible as it relates to the environment, it comes from a conservationist tone, not an environmentalist tone. And I hate to break the news to you, you can't save the earth. Did we not cover in Peter that in the end it will all be burned up? You can't save the earth. Now, does that mean we throw garbage in the streams? No, I like pure streams. I like clean water. I like seeing pristine mountains. I like breathing really good air. A 
A conservationist enjoys that which God created. An environmentalist alienates God's creation from its creator. How about this one? Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, is God's word sufficient as it relates to the issues of marriage and what marriage is? I think it does a pretty good job. How about this one? Do not be, even un <clears throat> Do not be unequally yoked in a with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Is God's word sufficient as to whom you should marry? Whom you should have relationships with? You know how many times I see this compromised? I was, just, I was just ministering to a young couple. They're unevenly yoked. It'll be all right. I pray that it is. But is God's word sufficient as to whom we should be dating and whom should we be marrying? How about this one? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Is God's word sufficient in the areas of sexuality? I say it is. Keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you and never forsake you. Now, is God's word sufficient in the matters of money? It's one of the most predominant discussions and topics in the Bible is money. Do you believe what God's word says about money in the Bible? Now, brothers and sisters, I could do this all day. <laughs> we could come up with any issue that you want, and I will find a verse that addresses it. And I'll use it in its proper context. Why? Because the Bible has the answers to everyday life issues. It's sufficient. So, there's the question. Is God's Word sufficient? Is God's word sufficient? We've examined these three verses this morning as it relates to salvation, as it relates to morality, as to what brings us true joy and peace, as to what brings purity in life, and how to find it, and what is true in all manners of life questions. And we have to ask ourselves then, is it sufficient? Is it sufficient in directing and leading our lives today? We need to decide because as the world continues to progress away from God, the choice will become ever more increasingly difficult to make. Is God's Word sufficient? It is my belief and conviction that it is. I hope it is yours too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks and praise for your word. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you that it's living and active in our lives, Father. Rightly dividing what is true and what is not. 
rightly convicting our soul of the sin that lies in it, rightly guiding us, rightly leading us, rightly revealing to us that which is right, that which is wrong. Oh, Father, let us live by your word in every facet of our life. Because if we believe it's inerrant, if we believe it's infallible, well then, Father, it's sufficient. And I thank you, Father, that you reveal that to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and join.